0: Today, I'm speaking with Steve Telburn, Managing Director of Secret Source IP Ventures and board member of organisations such as the Entrepreneurs Program, Innovation and in Science Australia, the Exercise and Sports Science Association of Australia, and retirement communities provider Sundale Limited, to name a few. Steve is an accomplished tech entrepreneur, having started up and assisted early stage companies as a CEO through to successful exits. We discuss innovation opportunities within the healthcare industry and some key things to have in mind to ensure that a startup idea is validated and investor ready. We also consider key drivers impacting the future of healthcare and how innovation can be resourced creatively within the sector. Steve is a solid technology executive who brings to bear his lived experience in a down to earth way with a genuine desire to help navigate through the challenges of commercializing and launching your health tech startup. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Steve, how are you doing today? Very well, Yanni.
1: Great to talk.
0: Thank you for uh, taking the time and having a chat with me today. Uh, you've been doing some interesting stuff in the name of uh, Secret Source. Uh, do you want to give us a little bit of a background on your good self and uh, Secret Source? And we can sort of move into a conversation about some other things you're doing at the moment.
1: Sure. So right now I'm mainly providing advice regarding technology and innovation. So that's in the form of advisory boards for various startups. And then I also sit on some formal boards for larger organizations where they're looking for a, I guess, a, a technology or innovation perspective. So uh, one of those boards is ESSA. So that's the uh, peak member body and accreditation body for exercise scientists, exercise physiologists, high-performance managers. Uh, so the mantra there is really around exercise is medicine, how we get people moving to help them in anything from chronic disease to, you know, right through to a obviously a high-performance sporting environment. Uh, I also sit on the board of uh, Sundale, which is a mid-sized aged care provider. We've got about 15 sites across Queensland. And the, the last formal role is uh, the Entrepreneurs Program Committee. That's a, a part of Oz Industry. And our role there is to help assess and rank uh, federal grant applications for early stage startups. So, that, that particular program, Accelerating Commercialization, has put, uh, I think it's about 400 grants and about $200 million so far to various startups across digital health. Edge manufacturing, fintech, medtech, pretty much across the board. We also fund uh, venture accelerators, and uh, there's another interesting program around government procurement. So, what that's trying to do is use startups to solve government challenges. So, rather than a traditional government procurement process, this is uh, trying to engage with the startup community and say, "Well, hey, we've got a problem. Um, have, have you got a a, a novel way?" To solve that problem, then we'll fund a pilot and then a proof of concept through that. I guess my background originally when I was um, at uni, it was I, I thought I'd be in life sciences. That was sort of where my head was at, was sort of doing physiology at uni. And then after that, somehow ended up at Telstra in their IT department, running major uh, software projects, and then uh, ended up in the R&D labs where we uh, had a team that was looking at the new business models that would emerge from the internet. So this is back sort of in the 1990s. So lots of black skivvies and (laughs) 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 Um, I remember my uh, boss using big words like uh, disintermediation. (laughs) Um, so, So trying to get my head around that. But as it happened with the Telstra, at the Telstra Research Labs, had a killer AI team that they were using for mainly fraud detection, so trying to detect fraud within the network. They were also doing interesting things around text mining. And because of my interest in physiology, I was still going to all these other lectures to do with uh, life sciences, and I went to a a lecture at the Peter Mack Cancer Institute and the guy that was doing the keynote speech there was talking about some of the problems that they had, they couldn't solve. Uh, and one of those problems was around uh, detecting cancers with unknown primaries. So they didn't know where the cancer had started. And uh, I was chatting to him afterwards. I thought, oh, you know, I, I think I, I know some guys at, at Telstra that, you know, they're really smart with all this AI data mining stuff. I reckon they might be able to help. And uh, that was sort of the seed of this great collaboration between Telstra and, and the Peter Mac around cancer detection. And uh, for me, that was a bit of a an aha-type moment. I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, you can take this tech coming out of, out of a Telstra IT environment and you can apply it into life sciences and you can solve some pretty significant problems. And so for me, that was sort of the start of getting involved in technology commercialization so then from there was a journey of getting involved in the very early stages of startup uh, helping define the business build a team go and raise venture capital uh, and and take take that company I guess to the next stage and then that might then mean moving that company offshore transitioning to a new CEO and then moving on to the next one so I did did that for a series of of different companies. So um, the first one was to do with uh, an IP networking solution. We solved a problem around networking, delivering telephony calls over uh, IP networks. We raised uh, 6 million bucks, you know, got a big, big swag of money, moved to the US and then it all sort of blew up. (laughs) 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 Um, And and probably a good example of how you would do things differently today. Uh, in, in how you would build a product, MVP style, as opposed to going and investing multi-millions of dollars in a product before you take it to market, um, which you couldn't do very well back in those days. So then started again with another company that was doing a another AI, a speech recognition solution. So again, same process, build the team, raise the venture capital, get the product to market, get the first customers on board. Then did another one that was uh, an IoT solution, so Internet of Things. So, again, same process build the team, raise the first round, um, get the customers. Uh, and then finally, another one, uh, which was a spin off out of uh, the Nicta Labs, uh, which is now part of Ciro. Um, and that was to do with uh, online games. So it was a networking solution for online games. So I guess the key there was is uh, I've been through this process a number of times of taking things from that very idea stage through to uh, a proper, proper business with a team and a, a business model and, and customers.
0: You've had a, an incredible career to date and, and even the current uh, roles that you perform as well. It's a real credit to you, Steve. So um, well done and congratulations on that journey. I think it's great that, you know, you kind of can reflect on the experience of that blow up that you had in in the US, uh, (laughs) so to speak. I think it says a lot about how uh, misunderstood startup is just generally. I mean, we all know generally that they fail a lot. There seems to be a lot of energy that gets put into uh, trying to bring young, inexperienced founders into startup. And not enough energy put into bringing older, more experienced co-founders as well into the space. Do you find that through your journey?
1: I, I do. I, I think it's about getting the mix right, isn't it? I, I think you need that mix of people that have done it before and I, I guess understand the process, understand that this what we're going through now. This isn't entirely normal, even though it feels very disorientating this is normal. So I think having that experience is is very valuable. Whereas I think if you haven't been through it before, then you go, oh my God, this is a disaster. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, so it can help steady the ship, but then obviously you do also need you know, the, the enthusiasm and the people that have, I guess, lived the problem from the other side. And I, what I mean by that is people that have come out of a particular industry, identified a problem, and have felt the pain of uh, that particular problem within the industry. And and to my mind, that's you know the ideal founder set is you've got people that have come out of a particular uh, industry, seen the problem, felt the pain, have decided they want to jump out and solve that problem, get those people together with people that have been down the track before so they... They know the process they know the language they know how to talk to investors and what the expectation is from investors and I, I think collectively then you have a very strong founding team
0: yeah i i personally relate to that and believe in it as well i think it's really key uh, it's part of the story i guess of health tech x in trying to actually get four distinct perspectives around a given problem and having having that idea represented by yeah, an innovative healthcare provider who's out there experiencing the opportunity or the potential challenge that yeah. uh, current systems and perhaps current innovation doesn't deal with in any way shape or form combining that with the innovative developer who actually understands the prevailing landscape of technology uh, is able to actually realize that or present that in a way that is sustainable as a as a minimum viable product something that we could actually stand up and definitely bringing yeah. the expertise around uh, you know that lived experience the advisors people who really understand the domain and um, what that product is likely to be contending with above and beyond the customer feeling that there's value in it, in, in terms of their interaction with it today. And ultimately, investors, as you point out, uh, the way that an investor looks at a particular business, it's it's been really key to trying to bring those four perspectives together. So I really appreciate hearing it from your perspective, just through your own journey on how important it is to get that founder set right.
1: Because a lot of the work that I've done has been things that have come out of a research environment. The risk there is even higher that people within that environment don't necessarily have the exposure to industry and perhaps intellectually think there's an issue here um, that needs to be solved. But in reality, if you if you talk to somebody that's actually working in industry, that the problem is different or the problem you think is a problem is not actually a a problem at all. And I, I, reflecting on one of my other experiences, there's also a risk, I think, that you can anchor too hard on. If you've developed some particular solution or some IP, perhaps you've got a patent around a particular solution, it's easy to become fixated on that particular thing. So I've had the experience before where you say, you know we can solve this particular problem in this particular way, and we've got a patent and you know what we do uh, gone and talked to some customers, and probably weren't listening well enough because on reflection, they've they've said we've got a bunch of these other things, these other problems that we could have solved, but we were so fixated on this particular thing that we we had, uh, this particular solution that we didn't actually see that there was this much broader opportunity to develop a solution that the customer would have loved and was basically telling us that would give us lots of money for. But we were saying, no, no, look over here at this shiny thing because <laughs> that that's what we'd come in to sell.
0: I see that a lot, especially when you've got an industry like healthcare where on one side of the healthcare industry is a highly evolved uh, informatics based approach to how systems should be built. And for what purpose? And meanwhile, on the other side of health, so you take, for example, the hospital sector and uh, and to uh, a greater extent, the general practice type model, uh, you've got a lot of evolution in standards that technology needs to address uh, in order to support the workflows of those particular uh, healthcare providers. And so the innovation potential is always butting up against trying to retrofit itself into the prevailing standardized uh, landscape. And so there's um, there's a real challenge there where innovation typically starts in an unbridled space, you know, in a, in a space where it's about human beings and, and what they perceive to be what they need at that particular point in time. That's, that's if you're actually out in the field talking to customers. If you're not interacting with customers, you're probably coming at it from a business analysis standpoint and you're looking at yes. it through the market scan, rules, regulations, standards, and a whole bunch of preconditions that exist in the space if you're too far one way or the other, you're probably not going to meet in the middle comfortably. What do you you think about that?
1: It's interesting to think about it from an investor's perspective because, you know, the investor is always looking for, I I guess, proof points and trying to say, well, how do we get confidence that this problem actually matters? How do we get confidence that people will buy it? And uh, how can we be confident that you're the right team to deliver it and that you can actually scale this business. So I, I think a lot of that is is around trying to get that balance right. So you've got the customer saying, yeah, we love this, but it, it's not gonna scale because it doesn't fit with the way things are done in the, in the healthcare system. It's not going to fit with the existing systems and business processes, for instance. So again, it, that's great customer loves it but it's it's not necessarily going to sell if you if your end user loves it but the actual people that are buying it are hospital and they can't integrate the solution
0: yeah absolutely or it could be that the customer that you're speaking to isn't representing the majority of the uh, uh the customers And so you've built something that's very niche. (laughs) The rest of the market, the broader part of the market is actually just not interested in it just yet. So you could actually be too far ahead of um, where the market actually sits at the moment.
1: Yeah, and again, we do see that a lot in that people in working with investors or uh, applying for grants, they'll bring forward evidence around customer demand, but it doesn't match the market that they've actually talked about as being their target market. So it, it's it's no point on the one hand saying you know look these customers in this particular context love this product, but if if you're building a plan and and a business model around a completely different type of customer, different target market, then that is not much use as a form of evidence. So always trying to counsel startups to say, well, make sure that. What you're bringing to the table, the effort that you're putting in, is actually validating a key part of your business model. You know, is is it some proving that customers want to buy the product? Is it proving that you have a scalable business? What are you actually trying to prove? What's what's the experiment you're trying to run? And, and I like to think of the startup process as essentially a a series of experiments, and you know the. The models that people use now, I think, make that a lot easier. When we talk about minimal viable products and and that whole process, I, I think it lends itself well to that experimental way of thinking. How do we test this? What evidence can we then bring to a partner or an investor to say that we got this right?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, and that 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 conforms also with um, with Australia's R and D incentive program as well. You know, sort of taking that approach where. You're actually developing uh, an experimental approach to actually testing and validating whether um, what you're thinking is likely to be valued by the customer or, or desired by the customer. This is in the context of software, by the way, Steve. I yes, understand yes, yeah. the R&D origins are more in the uh, laboratory type model, but when we sort of apply it into the software space, you're kind of thinking about how to actually encapsulate um, your hypothesis or you know what you what you believe is likely to be required by a given customer, and then kind of moving to validating that through the development iterations that you go through and the feedback that you're actually getting around the results.
1: Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, it takes that same concept in, and the commercialization grant process is that same, uh, you know, it, it, these are not things that are supposed to be done on a, a gut feel. It's around what evidence can you bring to the table. So if, if you say there is demand for this particular product, show me you know, the customers that have said, If the product could do X, Y, Z, then uh, we're willing to buy the product or we're willing to trial the product. So it's all around building an evidence base for uh, your particular proposition. But
0: there's a couple of things I was noting that you are saying earlier, just through your own experience around how there was a department you're working in, working on some AI kind of tools, for example. But then you're out engaging with another part of the industry and you saw a possibility to be able to use the work that was being done there, which I'm assuming uh, the work that the use cases that um, uh, the AI team uh, was working on weren't the same as what Peter Mack was uh, dealing with at the time. So you actually saw an opportunity to take something that was actually intended to do something else or or was focused elsewhere and move it into a different domain. Let's talk about that a little bit. That's kind of a pivot, isn't it? In a, in well, a sense.
1: that that was for me. It was was more than the the pivot. This was the epiphany of you know <laughs> I I love uh, I I love this technology commercialisation uh, tech thing for that very reason because I I thought it's like well you you can take this thing a totally left field solution that came out of nowhere. So yeah, certainly these uh, this particular team, the AI team at Telstra, obviously had had. Uh, no exposure to anything biomedical. But in that particular case, the researchers did end up with uh, their career shifting over to the biomedical field and and working with clients like the Peter Mac. I found that exciting when I was starting my career, it was very siloed. I guess you were either in IT, as it were, or, uh, you know, life sciences and I found myself having to make a choice because my background was in life sciences, uh, but ended up in IT. But then with bioinformatics and all that coming about in late 90s, 2000s, I realized oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's actually a lot of crossover here, and there's a lot that the uh, software world can, can bring to, to life sciences. And so for me, that, that was yeah, just a, a great example of that, and that's what got me really excited.
0: I can relate to that I've seen uh, the opportunity in growing a product like core plus as an example where uh, there have been different situations where you can see how some of the technology can be used in other industries and other other segments or even in other verticals within the healthcare sector I wonder whether investors look through that that there seems to be one of these things in in the startup community where there are pitch nights and there are all these structured programs for um, innovators <laughs> and startups trying to actually get access to some resources to be able to express that idea and, and trial it out. Do investors take that type of view or, they, or do they prefer to see a startup idea that is very uh, single minded perhaps?
1: They absolutely want to see the big blue sky platform opportunity across the industries. But the, the key is that you need to pick where you're starting and prove that it works and that you're focused. So, you know, typically that sort of pitch would go along the lines of, this is what we can do, Here's the the big blue sky opportunity, imagine this across these different verticals, this will be massive, we don't even need to talk about market size numbers because intellectually you just understand that this could be transformative. But first, we're going to do this. In this particular industry for this particular problem working with these particular customers because obviously the risk with these big platform opportunities is that you get distracted you're trying to do 100 things at once Um, you're trying to be all things to all people so it's really about building a roadmap and saying we're doing this first the investor knows and loves the fact that you know once once you've done that he's he's another opportunity much broader opportunity where you know the the real valuation benefits will kick in but you you do need to be focused on that first opportunity in the near
0: term otherwise uh, you're just talking about it rather than actually getting traction seeing the revenue coming in seeing the pathway towards growth
1: yeah that's right and you know i i think coming back to one of the earlier points around Uh, making sure that the founders have some experience in the market that is important that you can demonstrate that for the first segment that you're going for because you you do see or I've seen a lot of opportunities where you know people will say oh we've solved this particular problem in this industry but we look across over at that industry there and we can see they're doing it all wrong if only they did it like us then all their problems would go away. And of course, they don't have a deep appreciation for what's actually happening in that industry, what the barriers are. And then they quickly learn it when they go in there and try to sell it and they're sort of marched out the door. So <laughs> it, it's it's about getting that right. So generally speaking, when we
0: think about the healthcare industry in its current state, you've sort of got a, um, a foot in the aged care sector, you're uh, dealing with the um, sports science and uh, exercise physiology uh, kind of sector. What do you see as the gaps at the moment? What are the areas where health tech innovation needs to do more? It's not doing enough. And what can health providers do to, to participate in that or perhaps even initiate some of that innovation?
1: I think generally as a rule, when I you know see some of these organizations, they're not as progressed as, as you might expect. So I think it's easy when when you're in sort of a startup environment, um, such as itself, you sort of you get immersed in all this technology and all these opportunities, and oh, we could do this with you know VR and AR, and we do this and all these devices. And then when you actually work with some of the larger organisations, you you realise well, there's some fairly basic things that need to be set up in terms of just basic digital infrastructure. And I think for a lot of these organisations, it's actually not so much around technology. It's probably more from the innovation perspective, it's more around uh, people and process. So looking at different ways of working, um, looking at, I, I think, how, how do we engage with the startup sector is a very important part for some of these larger organisations because there's a huge appetite there from from the startups point of view, they, you know, we've just had this whole discussion around the importance of getting into customers and getting um, validation that the solution will work and actually solves a significant problem. Similarly, from the organizations, the larger organizations point of view, they're trying to do more around innovation, but not really sure how or what to do, but they would love to run, or certainly from what I've seen, they would love to participate in trials and, have a go with some of these new technologies in in isolated pilots. So for me, uh, I think a, a lot of what can be done is around trying to bring those two sectors together and give them room to experiment, give them permission to make mistakes, for things not to work, and setting up environments where that's okay. Which is obviously in in the healthcare sector, you know, not not that simple. There are some constraints around what you can do and how. But I think a key part of it is trying to bring those two organisations together.
0: So I guess um, at a a more pragmatic level, what do you think the key steps are for somebody who might be listening or who's out there at the moment with an idea? And by someone, it could be an individual. It could be an organisation. What do you think the recommended key steps would be to actually get some momentum behind it and actually start to get to that experimental framework? what would you suggest?
1: I would go back to that experimental framework as as, as the best approach. So it, it's about the first step is, does this thing solve a problem that matters? So talking to customers and talking to people within the industry. So if you're in a, uh, a research environment or, or perhaps you've got together with some other co-founders and come up with an idea, then that's when you can take that concept to a a trusted person you don't need to build anything i guess that's that's one of the key messages don't race off and build things beyond what you need to prove at some level that it's going to work you don't need to build the ui components you don't need to build the end-to-end onboarding processes and things like that it's just at the core of the idea does this thing work and not only does it work does this problem matter? So it's, it's around getting validation from that, from people that are credible. The next step would generally be, given that, is somebody going to pay for it? That's when you would um, say so you, you might have a structure where if you're working with an organisation to say, well, we're going to run a trial with uh, this particular technology or invention, trying to get an understanding of, at, at the conclusion of that trial, what, what is the value that's been created and talk to them about what sort of value it has and therefore what does that translate to in, in terms of pricing and who who would the customer be. So I think from there, if you've got validation around that that the problem matters and that's come from engaging with the market, you've got some confidence that it's significant enough that people will pay for it I think then there is a, a creative process, I guess, that needs to happen around what is the go-to-market strategy for this thing, and, and that might not be immediately obvious. So I think to my mind, uh, I like to approach that in, in presenting different options or considering different options. So who is the customer? That could be quite different depending on the model that you choose, you know, is the is the customer the channel? Is it the end customer? Is it a hospital? So what, what is the value proposition for, for them as opposed to the end customer? You know, is this sort of a SaaS style delivery model? What does that mean? That means we need a you know, very low uh, customer acquisition cost. What experiments can we run to validate that that is actually feasible? You know, if, if we're just doing ads, via linkedin adwords whatever is that going to bring enough traffic to generate sales or if we're using um you know more of a referral type model how how do we test that this could work so i I think that um coming up with at, at that stage a set of different business models and some experiments around how do we test this how do how do we get some data that enables us to say, well, this looks like this is the best approach and this is going more likely to work. Let's take the next step working with a customer or an investor or a grant or whatever um, to, to validate that particular model. I see a lot of businesses that are clearly investable propositions and some that are clearly not. Both of those groups are fairly easy to work with. The ones that are in the middle that's really tricky because you you can spend you know eighteen months hunting for capital when you were probably never really going to to raise it because you just don't fit the profile of the type of thing that an investor looks for and that's where you need to accept that reality and and look at different ways to market that you talked about makes
0: a lot of sense and it also implicitly uh, recognises that um, we shouldn't just believe that investors know what should be invested in nobody has the crystal ball on what's going to be what humanity needs or what a community needs or what a a given group of customers needs. So founders need to uh, recontextualize that, that the investors are actually looking for things to back. They're not pushing into the market that I will only invest in you if I agree that your idea is what I think should happen. What they're saying is that given the research you've done, given the experimentation you've done, given the feedback and validation that you're getting from the market, it looks like you're onto something and um, you seem to be um, a quality management team and, and have your business structures and processes set up in a way that I can feel confident that uh, investing in you is a worthwhile bet.
1: Yeah, and, and there's, there's so many unknowns to that uh, investment process, as you say. And one of those is I think founders have to accept that they're an unknown. Um, and one of the the, the key unknown, so uh, certainly, in my experience, I've never found where you can just walk in and say we're, you know, raising this many million dollars, and you know, you're not going to walk out of there <laughs> with, a, with a check. It, it's generally a, a, a long process where you know you have an initial chat. You're not actually raising money, but the key thing is you say you're going to go and do a bunch of things, and they're running an experiment on you. If you like, for the early stage investor, they they need to be confident that this sector is is popular, the problem that you're solving is is one that people care about right now and therefore um, you're not going to end up with a a stranded company um, with no capacity to to raise, follow on investment.
0: It makes a lot of sense why there's that sort of broad context around different investment segments. I'd like to finish up with a uh, more visionary kind of uh, take, your perspective on uh, the show is called Reimagining Healthcare. And, uh, and so I like to ask the question, where do you see healthcare going just in, in over the next, let's say, five years, possibly longer?
1: Well, I, I guess in, in looking at it in, in terms of the things that need to change, I mean, an, an obvious one is, is around data. And, you know, this is a, a constant theme around data silos and availability. And I think a key aspect there is, uh, is around trust. Particularly in the government's role in in trust of that data. So, do consumers trust the government with their data? How how do we how do we resolve that? Because I think everyone understands the opportunity. If if there was much better availability of data, what that could open up in terms of improvements to to healthcare. I hope that that in some way can be resolved. We talked before about giving organizations room to innovate willingness to fail and experiment. So I, I'm, I'm hoping uh, from what I'm seeing that there is that shift, that organizations are willing to take more risks to engage with the startup sector. So I, I'm quite positive about how that will play out over the next uh, few years, including government, I, I think is it's, it's a lot more appetite from what I've seen to take those risks and, and adopt those types of solutions. The other one that I, I find is is interesting, I know in the, in the aged care sector, there's this concept of uh, dignity of risk, allowing people to take their own risks. And I, I guess, uh, from a provider's perspective, moving away from a more paternalistic type model to say, well, if people accept this risk, then they're they should be able to take it. And how do you, as as an organisation, balance the duty of care with this concept of dignity of risk? For me, I think that's one of the the key issues about how digital health tries to address that issue of of giving the right information to people so that they can make the right choices.
0: It's a real challenge, isn't it? Because uh, we have never had so much data and we're producing it almost at an exponential level. And the more systems we interact with, the more data that gets produced. And then the systems themselves have data. Uh, And there's a concept called dark data, uh, which I won't go into too deeply uh, right now. But there's just, there's a plethora of data. Uh, That's the bottom line. And then which part of that is actually valuable? Which part of that is actually useful? Because I I see what you're describing there as uh, something akin to consumer-directed care within the the aged care setting. And i would never thought about it that way. Um, so that terminology is kind of interesting. I think the data is absolutely the key. There's definitely um, a great opportunity to actually be more precise in the way that healthcare and the consumer interact and work together and to have uh, something that is uh, is more personalised and more specific to the needs of that individual at whatever stage they're at. So I think that idea is um, now having a better model in some ways of actually being able to use it so that the the healthcare industry and the consumer are actually cooperating around their the goal <laughs> and the set of goals Yeah, that after.
1: Because I mean certainly the you know the the opportunity around more personalized healthcare is obviously a, a holy grail, but if without that trust that people are going to do the right things with the data, then that gets a bit spooky and, and yeah. people don't like that. So how how do you get that balance right so that it uh, they trust you. And therefore, you you can get these amazing services that would be enabled by personalised healthcare that would come from from that data availability.
0: Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate you once again taking the time and having me to of a chat, giving us some insights into innovation in the space. You're a very busy guy and I really appreciate that you've been able to actually give us some uh, insights there and hopefully the listeners will get some inspiration out of uh, taking a few steps towards uh, conducting an experiment and potentially (laughs) producing something that actually solves some real-world problems and is uh, investable, as you say. So thanks again, Steve. I really appreciate you coming in.
1: It was great to chat. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Yanni.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with HealthTechX, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com, Dot com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Gianni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.